Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tolhurst, and with me to discuss Tory rebellions, levelling up, housing, planning, and a row over private schools is Conservative MP and former Immigration Minister Kevin Foster, Labour's Shadow Local Government Minister Sarah Owen, as well as Robert Colville, Director of the Centre for Policy Studies Think Tank and one of the authors of the Conservative Party's 2019 election manifesto. And now this week, one of the big rows that we're seeing is around the levelling up bill, two amendments with lots of MPs signing on two sort of very different kind of issues, but very related. Firstly, on an amendment to scrap the mandatory housing targets and a second one on to end the ban on onshore wind. I'm going to start with you, Rob. You, you said before we started that you, you're being blamed for both of these. Uh, you, you, you said uh, that any MP who backed these wicked proposals, scrap the housing targets, are spitting in the face of a generation and removing any prospect they will ever vote Tory. So but since you've written that, uh, more MPs have signed that. Uh, yeah. So, so, so yeah. how do you how do you feel about uh, your attempt to win round uh, Conservative well, MPs? Well, yeah, obviously uh, my my attempt to win hearts and minds uh, didn't really really work. Yeah. Um. So uh, two two amendments, both in slightly different directions. Um. One is the continuation of a long running intifada um, led by Theresa Villiers um, and and various others about about the planning regime. Um. The Tory manifesto, which you referred to, promised that the government was going to build three hundred thousand homes a year in England, uh, and crucially in the places where people need to live and work. Um, this hasn't gone down very well with lots of people in the places where uh, housing pressures are, are highest. Um, it's, it's chiefly um, Tory seats in the southeast. Um, the Cheshire Man and Hampshire by-election, they blame for this. Uh, and so they first they forced the U-turn of Rob Jenrick's proposals to liberate the planning system. And now they're trying to sort of destroy the the existing planning system that was there before. So it, it's not just one amendment. There's a, there's a sequence of amendments. But, but essentially what they do is make planning voluntary for councils rather than compulsory. So the way it works at the moment is you have that 300,000 target, then the government says, hey, local councils, this is actually how much you need, you probably need to build a new area, come up with a plan to do it. And the Villiers amendments say, you don't have to listen to the government when it says that, you don't have to identify any sites to put houses on, and there is to be no presumption in favour of development within the system, which holds that all other things being equal, if someone says, I'd like to build on this land, and there's no reason not to, you should build on it. Mm-hmm. So that, that like really, really, really takes an axe to... Uh, to housing, it um, it destroys the, the housing sector. We you know, estimates are that it cuts twenty to forty percent off the house building industry. House building sector thinks it's that's a seventeen billion pound hit to, to GDP. It's it, you know all of the young people who can't get homes already. It it, it absolutely screws them over. Um, I mean, as Kevin will probably say, you know there are lots of legitimate concerns for Tory MPs in their own constituencies. Yeah. But but the, the kind of response is basically, uh, in order to protect my constituency, I, I'm going to just burn burn the whole thing down. Right. Um, I mean, they they say it's not about stopping development but stopping the wrong development in the wrong areas. But they're effectively sort of outing themselves as, as NIMBYs, really. Uh, this is kind of shaking his head, we'll come on to it in a second, but Rob, why do you think this is sort of... Why do you think they're so pursuing on this issue? Um, I think it's a, it's a combination of factors. There, is, there are genuine local pressures. Um, the, um, there's lots of areas where, the, you know, second homes and holiday lets are a, are a huge issue. There's lots of areas where there's massive amounts of green belt and you can't, can't really build on that. There is, you know, just, there is just electoral self-interest. There is a broader sense, which I wrote my Sunday Times column on uh, recently, that, you know, that discipline is slightly breaking down, yeah. that you know, everyone thinks they're going to lose, so there's, le- uh, there's less incentive. You know, there's this extraordinary stat that half of Tory backbenchers are now former ministers, in, in one of them is in yeah. this room. <laughs> uh, if, you know, if you're a minister, what, what can you realistically offer them? You know, you, there's, there's not really enough places in the Lords for everyone. <laughs> right, sure. And speaking of former ministers, we'll bring, bring uh, Kevin in now. You didn't sign that amendment, the Theresa Williams amendment, but you did sign a different one, which was about uh, requiring planning permission for change of use 
to tourist rental. I know your constituency is Torbay. There's a lot of issues with, with second homes and, and, and tourism. It looks like Michael Gove is said to be considering agreeing to this, not agreeing to the, the main and village amendment, but maybe agreeing to this. What do you kind of make of that? Is that something you want to see? And what do you think of your colleagues who are signing the, the Villiers Amendment? Well, it's welcome if we can start seeing some control placed on uh, the, the conversion into short-term holiday lets. Because, you know, we have an R. And I think perhaps listening to some of the points just made is one of the concerns from colleagues is actually how the targets work, how housing is being delivered. Because there's little point saying, look, we want to deliver housing, meet local need, and then discover, let's say, half of it in a constituency like Torbay converts into a short-term holiday let, which wasn't what we were actually looking to deliver. And there are clear housing pressures that need to be met. I must say, I haven't actually signed the particular uh, Villiers Amendment. Uh, and, cons- and you're a good person. Cons- <laughs> concern. Well, thank you. Uh, but it is how that, and also if councils are giving permissions, how many that actually become housing completions? I think there's an astonishing stat of something like a million permissions that have not actually that, been that built is, that out. Is, that is just a nonsense. Stat so, anyway. but but it is again. Well, again though, I mean, having been in local government of things, you can have a lot of rows about giving a permission, then find yourself three or four years down the line taking a lot of flack, a lot of heat, and absolutely nothing to show for it in the way of people actually getting a home or getting permission. Now that may not be quite so precious. For example, someone like London, the southeast, where once there's permission is granted, there's a very strong commercial incentive to get on and build it uh, but for example in other parts of the country you know you can see a permission granted and then you're looking to see the actual housing created so there is I think some legitimate points picked up amongst some of the commentary about well actually how can we make sure that a permission granted is then built out how can we ensure that when it's built out it's actually delivering the housing we want which is people able to get a home in their local community and also what you have a council for example five-year land supply issues if a council is really building out and doing well then in theory then gets challenged that well you need even more land to be allocated so there are some real practical concerns and also just the time it takes to build stuff you know i can think when i was a councillor in coventry about 10 years ago 13 years ago we were arguing about particular sites that are now just being built on that that gives a huge disincentive amongst a lot of the theory around this so what's kind of Labour's thoughts on this you've seen kind of the Tories tearing themselves apart as usual on all all these kind of planning issues what what's the kind of Labour's view and what's Labour's plan for sort of house building and and how do you see this kind of uh, the Villiers amendment I think what we're seeing here is although we've got rid of the kind of car crash that was Liz Truss's um, government we're still seeing the chaos that Rishi Sunak is trying to to handle and is failing to handle because of the Villiers Amendment and the rebels, he's failed to face them down and he's had to pull this. So we actually don't have an amendment in front of us to vote on. We don't have a bill to discuss. And we want to be the sensible adults in the room and say we will actually lend our votes to the government to see some progress. It's not perfect, the levelling up bill, by any stretch of the imagination. But what we need to see, for all the reasons that were outlined, particularly for young people, um, we need to see some progress. And as Kevin said, this progress takes a long time to actually come to fruition so we need to get on with that now mm. what, what are your thoughts on kind of top-down targets because there's a lot of criticism of the Tory party that it's not helpful you know would, would a Labour government impose those sorts of targets to try and get things moving I think what we've got before us is not perfect and obviously we need to have a, a discussion about how those ca- targets are calculated and how they're enforced but to get rid of targets altogether is so deeply irresponsible at the moment when we have a housing crisis so in my inbox um, we consistently get people that are coming to us with lots of issues cost of living crisis health issues education but always at the heart of it is housing and it's overcrowding in housing as well and people not being able to get onto the ladder 
Yeah, it's, it's a central issue, isn't it, that, that comes, you keep coming back to it, that it's, it always comes back to housing. We talk at the moment about, they say, cost of living crisis. You know, the fact is that private rents have massively shot up. Simon Clark, who has been one of the people speaking out against the Phillies Amendment and has started the, the, the onshore wind amendment, he was saying that it's a big reason why he thinks that places in, in cities will will not vote Tory because there's too many people living in multiple but occupation it's houses. Not, and that sort of it's not even just about home ownership. This is about renters as yeah. well. I mean, we have had nothing for renters from this government for the last 12 years. And we've been promised the renters reform. Yeah. You know, we've been promised that they're going to uh, scrap Section 21 eviction, no fault eviction notices. And yet thousands of people are still having that. And I've got um, families coming to me now that have had to move into hotels because they've been evicted from their homes through no fault of their own. Mm. Kevin, do you want to comment on that? Well, it's interesting because of course I was just casting my mind back, I think it was a year ago, as Rob made to like the Lemon Labour Party's social media campaign saying that Boris Johnson wants to build houses and we'd rather communities were able to decide instead. So it's interesting now a year later to see uh, the, chain, the change in view. Uh, but in terms of all local authorities or council. We know there's housing pressures, we know there's challenges. I think where the core of this comes from, it comes down to, is if housing is delivered, will it be delivered in a timely way, not a permission land banked? Will it actually go to those who need to be accommodated? And we, even in some constituencies like mine, but certainly in areas around it, in parts of Devon and Cornwall, things like recruitment of care workers, NHS workers are becoming difficult, not because of visa arrangements, not because of workforce or budgets, but because they are going to struggle to find somewhere to uh, live within a any real realistic distance. So I think there's some of the issues there that need to be teased that need to be teased out, not just put down as you know this is all NIMBY. And I suspect some of my colleagues will of course be very interested to see what, what we might hear at a national level and then contrast it to what they might see in local campaigning from particular political parties against particular proposals for development. <laughs> yeah, I can see the Lib Dems looming large in that, those, those, uh, that thought. So yeah. what Rob, as I said, you helped write the manifesto in 2019. Richard Sunak has said repeatedly that, uh, or his spokesperson said that he wants to stick to the spirit of the manifesto, not necessarily the, the stuff in it, but the spirit of the manifesto. How, how well do you think he's doing on that so far? And where else would you like to sort of see from him if he is going to stick to it? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, the weird thing about this is the, the levelling up bill sort of doesn't, I mean, it doesn't do do anything on the top plan on targets and, and, and top the top down planning what it's what its real focus is i mean apart from the leveling up bit, bit which is obviously you know quite key um is on housing is 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 the um the, some of the other stuff which actually was in the manifesto about making homes more beautiful putting making sure the infrastructure is there i mean michael gove has this um uh, this acronym called biden which is you know beauty infrastructure develop uh, democracy environment and neighborhoods and um, as as he, as he said when well as well as he said when he outlined it to, to the cps a few years think think a couple of weeks ago um his advisors also told him it could be uh, in bed in case he was worried about being seen <laughs> being seen to endorse the democrats but he he thought being seen to endorse the democrats was slightly better than being in bed with michael gove yes indeed yeah i was oh, on a radio my. show the other day and yes someone asked him if he was wearing an extra jumper with a heating contest yes someone yeah, you can come around and see me in my knitwear whenever you like so i'm, I'm glad that <laughs> wow. goes uh, moving on from that mm, uh, yeah <laughs> so the, the issue obviously with the level up bill is this big round on onshore wind uh, and Simon Clark's on this moment. What's kind of Labour's thoughts on on this as well? Obviously, there's, you said that Labour might help lend its votes to the Tories to get through house building. What's your views on the onshore wind as well? So on the onshore wind, obviously, Simon Clark's loosens it slightly. But for us, we don't think it goes far enough. And we'd like to have an amendment that actually says that local people and communities should be able to say that they want the onshore wind. Mm. Because what we're seeing now is an energy crisis. And we need to have more security, energy security. And that means being able to produce our own energy. And one of those ways to do that efficiently 
is through onshore wind. At the moment, there is an effective ban because it could just be objected to by just one person. And that is not sustainable for the long term. And it's also not what the general public want. Mm. They want to see their energy costs come down. They want to see an end in reliance on kind of Russian and fossil fuels. Um, and this is a way forward. And it's also a way to create sustainable green jobs. Yeah. Sarah, as right, the the, the Public opinion is, is in favour of, of onshore wind, it's in favour of more house building. Why are your colleagues putting themselves on the other side of that? Well, I've signed uh, Simon's amendment. You know, I do think we need to have onshore wind as part of the mix where the sites are probably all the usual caveats you'd expect me to give in the planning process. You know, I'm not going to propose we plaster Dartmoor with them, but by the same token, uh, there are sites that would be suitable where there is genuine community uh, support. So, you know, we, it's not a magic bullet for our energy problems. You know, we still need new nuclear, we still need other sources of energy we still need to look at where we can source gas that we needed in the transition you know most people will still be particularly working families still be heating their home with a gas boiler for some years to come but again if we're having the thing and we need to look at all options then i don't see a reason for continuing the blanket ban and i suspect we will see some movement i just 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 the yeah. numbers are clearly there in the house it, it's just it, it's always just felt like a really weird policy to and then we're, we're sort of hilted on because you kind of equated it with housing there and it's, it's not actually the same like housing is ge- in is genuinely unpopular among large chunks of people in in especially in in specific constituencies although overall there is actually a you know, most polls show people do want more homes built in their in their area yeah um but but onshore wind um you know i think that it was banned so it, it was effectively banned sort of shadow banned as it were under under the cameron government among sort of genuine revolts over these awful terrifying steel monstrosities that no one had ever come across which we're going to kill all the birds what's happened in the, in the, in the subsequent you know, 10 years or so is an, is, an, is an extraordinary transformation in public opinion there is I, I, I keep having this argument on Twitter but there is genuinely overwhelming public support for onshore wind among Tory voters among rural voters among people who already live near wind farms like it is, an, it is not a controversial thing and it is especially not controversial to do what Simon Clark is saying which is not saying Again, there's no there's no imposition, there's no top down level. Just saying, if council if councils want to approve them, they should be free to approve them. Yeah. And what I don't understand is that the, a large section of the Conservative MPs that are against onshore wind are so pro fracking, and I'm just like, if you're looking at destroying or protecting nature. Why is it that or, this or, or this, rather, this wind farm if, if is so at, offensive? If you're, at, if you're looking at things your voters will actually support. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and also by. By removing this position in England, it would then really throw the spotlight back on the SNP and Scottish government's absolute refusal to even consider nuclear, which, of course, you have to remember, onshore wind's there, but we do need to have base load generation, which includes uh, nuclear as a zero-carbon energy. But, yeah, it's something that's popular, and I think if we're going to look at all all options to deal with the energy crisis and this needs to be on the table as well. But these are two key tests for Rishi Sunak and I actually don't know what it is that he believes and I think that this is a real fundamental question around Rishi Sunak about what his political beliefs are because we haven't really heard them so far. Mm. He doesn't seem to have a huge amount of substance when it comes to these sorts of issues. I don't know where he stands when it comes to housing targets. I really don't know where he stands when it comes to onshore wind. So I think he's now got a a test of leadership to get this levelling up bill through Mm. and like I said Labour will be the adults in the room and we will we'll seek to improve it where we can do. It, we know it won't be perfect. It won't be exactly what we want to see, but it will be, be- better than nothing. Yeah, I've heard sort of put to me that you know, the Tories are quite rebellious at the moment. The Tories are always kind of rebellious, but they, they tend to fall into line if there is a strong vision from the centre, from, from, from the top of the party. It doesn't feel as though we've necessarily seen that strong vision from, from Sunak yet. Do you think that's what's caused perhaps some of these the splits, actually? There isn't something for MPs 
from all stripes to hold on to going forward. Yeah, I, I think it's safe to say there's been debates about planning policy in the Conservative Party for, for some time, as there are in uh, Labour and other, I, I, other I, major I was, parties. I, I was you looking know. back at the, this, this is exactly the argument that Nick Bowles and David Cameron and everyone had, you know, 10, 10 15 years yeah. ago. Like, yeah. And, and this is, it's exactly the argument that Nicholas Ridley had, and it's exactly the argument that John Prescott had. Right? This, this, this stuff, like, this yeah. is like... And, yeah. and while I can remember sitting you know, as a councillor hearing, you know, Labour MPs vehemently opposing the idea that should be housing built in their area based on national targets, you know, which were set by Labour government. And so, I also think you know, it's, about, it's not it's a new a, debate. But, it's, but that debate is very nuanced in terms of like what kind of housing it is. Because if you are Whoa. asking a, a, an area that has an average wage of £20,000 whether they want to have five bedroom houses built on there that nobody well, locally can afford, um, particularly uh, well, young people... It was, it was it's, a classic example of but, saying one thing nationally and then but it's, not wanting the impact of I'm that just, I'm just I'm giving an outline here that as to why some of these debates are so are so kind of although, long-standing. Although many many people would actually say, if you want to, I've heard it said, you know, if you want to attract companies to the north, if you want to attract, you know, then you need to build homes for their executives to live in. So, but, I mean, and, and also, we had exactly we had exactly the same we had exactly the same problem in in Luton. We had to uh, the college wanted to redevelop. It had a large piece of land. It's sold it off for housing development so that it could actually develop and make this beautiful building for students to learn in. But we had Lib Dems going against that locally and somebody said to me oh what I see is just it's destruction I said well what I see is also homes homes and hope for people homes and education for people the college wouldn't wanted to have sold that land off if they didn't have to but they had to because they weren't seeing the funding coming anywhere else and what I see now is a beautiful building that means that students could get top class education and I'm also starting to see families move into those homes we'll come back to whether the Tories are ungovernable and unwhipple at the moment. So uh, Kevin sort of sidestepped that one, but we'll we'll come back to another issue actually that maybe the Conservatives are on the wrong side of public opinion. We saw this big attack on um, private schools, dominated Prime Minister's questions. I thought Keir Starmer's line about trickle-down education was, was quite good. What did you kind of make of that and, and the, the round in general about, about private schools? I think that sums it up totally. I really don't understand why anybody would have a problem with saying that private schools are, are not charities and therefore shouldn't be having these tax breaks. Mm. If they are education providers, then they should want to help the community around them. If they're a viable business, then they should be able to function without these tax breaks. Ultimately, it comes down to that. And what I find really difficult is when people have it and families that I represent and also families that I, I grew up in, being told that if you worked hard enough, then you'd be able to afford to send your child to private school. My parents at some stage, my dad worked three jobs as a firefighter, a lorry driver, window cleaner. My mum quite often worked in a Chinese takeaway as a, as a nurse. You know, they worked all the hours that they had and still wouldn't have been able to afford to send me to a private school. Education should be for everybody. A good education should be for everybody. It shouldn't just be for the people that can afford it. And I don't understand how this row is ensuing when it just goes to the heart of basic British fairness and values. Yeah, Rob, what are your, what are your thoughts on the row? Well, I mean, I think it's a it's a bad row for the Tories to really lean into because it's, um, you know, it's not um, it's not a popular cause. That said, um, in answer to what you're saying, I mean, education has been a charitable purpose since the age of, and recognised as such, since the age of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, the first one, not the second. One. Um, you know, it, you know, and it is, and one of the principles of charities that we don't tell chari- we don't tell charities that they need to do the following things because government says they do. Then, that, then they stop being charities and just become an arm of the state. I think you know, a- a- educating people is a, is a charitable purpose. Um, y- if you send, you know, if you 
impose extra costs on private, private, private schools, you, you send more kids into the state sector and increase the, increase the costs to the state. Um, but actually, I think what the Tories should be talking about is the fact that education is one of the areas where they have a really good story to tell over the last few years. Thanks to the Gove revolution, which built on the Adonis and Blair revolution, you know, the, um, the number of private schools has been falling. People, one of the reasons why private schools tend to be for, have becoming more exclusive is because, um, because the quality of state schools has been going up. More parents have been seeing actually, you know what, it, it makes sense to put my kids into, into the local state. And that's a, that's a, you know, the number of outstanding schools has, has gone up even though we've toughened up um, qualifications. That, and that's a really good thing. But I don't, I don't see, I, I think, you know, I, I agree pri public, public schools and private schools should do more to help their local communities. But the, the language about, you know, they are getting handouts. They're not getting, they're not getting handouts. They're, they're educating people and they're not paying VAT on it. I, I fundamentally disagree with the idea that education is charity. Education is a basic right, and it's a right for everybody in this country to have a decent education. And at the moment, not everybody is. And there is a deep unfairness. And we, I think we saw that through COVID, particularly during the pandemic, as to a disadvantaged areas being penalised more, not just because of the school that they're, uh, they're studying in, but because of the housing that they're in, because of the area that they're in, because of the digital deprivation. Yeah, so it'd be and great if Labour could, could come up with some education policies for the state have, sector, which have, they really haven't there is, done, there is rather one, than rabbiting One key one schools. is taking this £1.7 billion and helping those children get on in life. And one of those things is around mental health and, and support for them to get on. Yeah, yeah. So, well, I mean, I, I, I'm out myself as a private school pupil. Uh, shocker. I work in journalism. Um, and, um, and, you know, my school had a swimming pool, which they let local primary schools use, which was seen as a very, like, that's how they got the charitable status, doing things like that. But I don't understand why, you know, even as a pupil, I thought, well, surely the money that we saved as a charity could be used to building a leisure centre around the corner for people to use normally. It didn't have to, didn't have to be done this way, essentially, you know. And, and that's what I think people find it hard to understand why it has to be done and, in this way. And that's it. The language that you used was they were they let them use it. Yeah. It is not theirs. It, they, well, it is, I mean, it is. <laughs> it, it's not. It, it's you're allowed to use this. You're allowed to borrow it. You're allowed to come in. And that, therefore, reinforces that barrier. Yeah, absolutely. Kevin, you want to come on this? Yeah, I, I, I've got a feeling this is going to be the sort of 2022's version of the banker's bonus tax, where absolutely every pledge you ever want to put out ends up, funnily enough, is going to be paid by the, the, yeah. a or group that you don't... Corporate, you, corporation tax increases, yeah. yeah. Or, or non-doms. So, yeah, well, that... Well, yeah, yeah again, I mean, we get quite, these we're, we're into the billions. But, but, let's, but let's just focus for a moment. Look, I'm a comprehensive school kid. You know, I, my family could not have afforded to send me uh, to a private, private school. But I do not see the logic of this at all and also we could extend this if this is the philosophy now that it's right well what about the charitable status on various other things you know sports this is just an absolute nonsense and the idea that having a reasonable independent school nearby impacts on the state sector is literally for the birds that's why to be honest Labour didn't make this change for 13 years of its government it left this status in place so we are seeing I've agree the point just made that we are seeing in communities where state schools are improving including Torbay where I represent that actually independent schools have declined in popularity I've had two closed since I was uh, the MP there because the local schools have transformed I can think of one Ellicom Academy in the middle one is to private communities absolutely transformed by the type of policies Michael Gove put forward in fact Michael visited it a few years back to see firsthand what was done so this idea that shutting them down you know it makes a good headline it makes something that I'm sure will be cheered at a Labour conference but the actual impact on the ground is not going to is not going to be transformative and again I'd just say people can look at Wales and try and cons consider whether that is better than here in England I think you know 
know, it's not about shutting them down. People can still have the choice. They just need to be financially viable and not have a tax break, which could have gone to children in um, state education. And if, you know, they think that that's a, a, a popular policy and they want to go to the wall on, on this, then happy to go to a general election on it. Oh, well, we'll see, yeah. how, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> what, a, what a boring general election. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> two months. Well, well, you know, I think, to be honest, it'll be interesting to see how, you know, we saw how well last time around the politics of envy went down. So it's we'll see how much they go on This is a politics of equality and accessibility for good education for all. And I think the majority of the public want to see good education for their children. Absolutely no difference to, in my own constituency, for example, where I have different communities who have now got really good state schools about their access to education, whether there's a school down school down the road that doesn't charge a VAT on top of these. But what would make a difference is if 20% of those pupils then had to come back into the states, back into the state sector, which is completely ignored in this I policy. I think mm. probably your parents that do send their children to state schools would probably like a share of that 1.7 billion that currently goes to propping up private well, schools. Well, it doesn't. This is about charging tax on top of fees. So actually, you're assuming the demand stays the same. I think putting 20% on something, it's rare the demand and the number of people buying it stays the same. All right, well, let's have another go. Let's move on from, from, from private schools. Let's have another go at the, the Conservative Party. You know, uh, quite, quite literally, let's have another go. Yeah, another well, go yeah, well, certainly having a few uh, goes yeah. at us, so it'll be good to get on to. Well, yeah, yeah. As, well as, it is as, one against two. <laughs> so, well, to be fair, yeah. 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 As Robert pointed out earlier, you know, there's an awful lot of ex, ex-ministers. There's an awful lot of... And, and it feels like the, the power of patronage from the whips is not really there as much as it was previously. You can't sort of dangle things in front of people because it's it's much harder now after we're 12 years into a government, etc, etc. Um, you know, do you think that that means that it's going to be difficult for Sunak to bring the party together, unite the party going forward? Do you think it's you are a bit of a rabble at the moment, or would you? Ca- or would you know? Would you? If we're gonna have, a, you know, if we're gonna go for it, let's go for it. Are you a, bit, are you a rabble at the moment, or are you gonna? Oh, I, I wouldn't say we're a, we're we're a, a rabble. You know, you know, we are. You know, still a group that you know has come together. You know, this week we've had you know finance bill go through. You know, difficult stuff, things yeah. that aren't there, and you know we have not seen you know razor thin votes because of large numbers of rebellions. Because um, many because you haven't voted on a lot of the difficult things that have been sort of pushed down there and, and tabled a lot of the hard Well, things. but still, you know, people want to people want to express their disagreement, they find opportunities to do so. I think it's safe it's safe to say. Uh, but actually look, we are all united together around what we need to do. You know, we can see that there are challenges for the country and you know inevitably, you know, when there are difficult times, you know, there are going to be debates about what what the future are, particularly if you're in government. You know, we haven't got the luxury of you know, of opposition where you can sort of say one thing one month and then six months later forget that and say something completely di- completely different. Uh, but for ourselves, you know, there is a good team there. You know, we do we are looking to work together. Yep, there's the odd disagreement, but you know, just be honest, you know the fun the, the odd thing, but things like, you know, whether we have onshore wind or not is not a fun absolute fundamental to how we manage the economy and how we manage public services. Yeah, Rob, how do you how do you see it then? Uh, I think I think there's 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 two sides to this. I mean the, the, Generally speaking, the Tory party has become more rebellious and more fractious, as has Parliament. I think there is just a general tendency now for MPs more to see themselves more as the as the tribunes of their of their constituencies. Um, but as Kevin alluded to, the the finance bill from the autumn statement, even though it contained an awful lot of things that everyone in the Tory party hated, yeah. really bit of medicine to swallow, actually went through with the biggest majority of anything, everything since January. So I think there is a there is a general sort of overarching. There is people do buy the analysis that look, we've 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 we've, we've 
we've got rid of two leaders we can't like we can't do this again we need you know we do need to actually unite but at the same time you do hear people saying you know the, the really familiar complaints that oh number 10 isn't doing enough to talk to backbenchers yeah. you know it needs to listen to us more it needs to liaise more um yeah absolutely perennial um the the thing that you know uh the, you know we've we've done the heart the painful stuff now with the autumn statement so now in the spring with the budget we need to sort of we need rishi and jeremy to set out a, a positive and optimistic and you know voter you know something that might actually convince people to vote for us uh, maybe <laughs> would be nice you know um and so and um uh, you know so but but also yeah but also just there is a sense that yeah, there's just there's quite a lot of people who are who, who there's less who there's less leverage over and another, another factor is obviously is that is that apparently now whips can't go around um you know making dark threats to destroy people's lives and careers or expose their their, their secrets because uh you know in the kind of classic house of cards cards fashion you know it's kind of symbolic that gavin williamson has has been has been booted yeah. out and, and simon and simon hart is the chief whip who is who, who is who is very much someone who's i think liked rather than yeah he's, he's and, a good cop without a bad I, i'd say as as a whip that that's probably the more effective of the two yeah, yeah. Sure. i would never want to disappoint somebody that I liked. Oh. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I just, I just yeah. know, I just know that this house was the uh, was just uh, just a, a fantastic piece of theatre. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I, I, I like to imagine yeah. that that's still happening. But. Kevin, just on, on one of the things as well is that we're seeing a number of MPs, your colleagues, saying they're going to stand down and not stand at the next election. Do you think that's also part of this kind of this? kind of feeling that there's coming to the end of, a, of an administration that, you know, you've got people, someone like uh, Chloe Smith, who's on the podcast a few weeks ago, she's only 40, she's only, Will Rags only 34, he's standing down. The people who should be starting their parliamentary careers are, are actually saying, oh, you know what, I'm going to suck it in, you know. Yeah. What, what? There, there are some that are less surprising. So, for example, Gary Streeter recently announced his retirement, yeah. has been an MP for 30 and, years and, and, is in, and is in well, his late 60s. And yeah, there's yeah. a number of Labour MPs who are stepping down as well. And also about now is the time we'd start seeing people having to make that decision of, right, I've now got to have a commit to yeah, being yeah. standing. Well, they, they've literally been told, you have to tell us by yeah. December. December the 5th, yeah. yeah. And some people like myself had already, their local associations had already reselected. So some had already confirmed. But yeah, it's, it's brought that to a head now that probably now you need to start making your mind up. And similarly, people will move on. And also, of course, some people, their constituencies are being abolished. And I think the era when yeah, you could... Yeah, Skidmore, I think, is one of the... Yeah, and I think, and Andrew Percy as well. And the era when suddenly, you know, we remember it back in the 90s, uh, would happen in all parties, the boundary changes, and someone would suddenly go from representing part of London to being standing in Yorkshire or things like that. That doesn't work well. That doesn't go down well with electorate. And increasingly, local parties are less inclined to select someone whose seat's been abolished and is now being dropped off somewhere else. Mm. So again, those sorts of things can have a factor in people's decisions. Yeah, as, as you point out, lots of Labour MPs, but it feels more the Labour MPs, people like Harriet Harman, Margaret Hodge, Rosie. Margaret Beckett. Yeah, it feels like there's more of a kind of a changing all, all, of the... All, all women. Uh, yeah. I, feel, I feel like there's a bit of a changing of the guard, maybe. You know, that, that there's a feeling that Labour are going to come into power, maybe, and it's a chance to let some younger MPs come in and, and feel what it's like to actually not be in opposition for 12 years. And know, they've also served years. a very long time. Yeah, you know, if you look at Harriet, for example, she's had an entire career. She's the mother of the house. Yeah, yeah. you know, uh, and Becky was, I think, was a, and, even earlier than that. When and I suspect there were some who didn't stand down last time round because of who might be selected to replace them, but have stayed on this time round. Perhaps more confidence in who might follow them on. But be because they also had things to do still. And they have, like, they've, 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 things have changed. And I think the last two to three years probably has brought 
into some perspective what is most important to people, particularly later on in their careers. But I do think it is pretty shocking that, that Will Rag and that Deanna, for example, and Chloe, yeah, yeah, that yeah. are stepping down. Because, as you say, and I love the fact you said only 40. <laughs> um, but, you know, these, these are young people. It is not easy to get elected. This is not something that you just wake up one day and go, ah, oh, I'm going to be an MP. This is something that you have to really think about, you have to work at, you have to know that this is what you want to do. And it is kind of, I think we do have to look at ourselves and ask some questions why it is some of the younger uh, politicians and some of the younger Tory politicians are choosing to step away from something yeah. that they wanted to uh, do uh, so, uh, yeah. so uh, much. And I think it's a real mistake if we talk about this as, as just a sort of Tory dysfunction thing I think there yeah. is a, there is just a much bigger thing that we really have to think about about the quality of politicians the type of people who come into politics and you know I'm always in, so impressed when people I know and you know or I meet MPs who are you know who are, who are the kind of people you'd want to have in in parliament because the truth is there are just a lot of people who look at that and look at the pressure under especially women especially the vicious abuse you get if, if just for being female on on the internet and it, it is like I mean, you know, I, I would never want to be an MP, MP. I did some work experience when I was 18. It was just enough to know. That I, I just, you, know, you just have, to, it's, it is, it is just such a rare thing, but it's become worse and it's become tougher. And it's, you, you see fewer and fewer people wanting to do it, I think. Or, you know, if, 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 um, yeah, I mean, you, you can definitely see, um, yeah, and like the money is, is much worse than people could get. You know, the, the, the kind of people you'd hope would get into Parliament is, is, is often worse than you could. There's a whole complex of factors around that. Yeah. I was, you know, I think the Conservative Party worked really hard to try and get more women into Parliament. The numbers are still about it's about twenty five percent, isn't it, of the Parliamentary Party is is female. But then, if you're, you know, the the difficulties in becoming an MP, do you think that's that's going to put more off going into the future? Do you think? Yeah, I, th I think we've got to desperately try and avoid the idea that rhino skin is becoming one of the main attributes you have to have in yeah. Parliament. Right to highlight, particularly experience of female colleagues. You know, particularly Ruth Smith, one of your former colleagues. You want to former colleagues the a torrent of abuse she was getting was unbel absolutely unbelievable and fair play to her for the way she carried on with it yeah. but I started thinking you know I'm a government MP and you know, I'm voting for things that are not going to please everyone inherently you end up doing that in government and for opposition MPs getting absolute torrents of abuse and stuff and you just sit there thinking this that we can't have a situation where rhino skin and ability put with constant attacks on social media is, is the main attribute you need in politics Absolutely. But I think what it is, is that there is a different standard to which we are held. So although you and Nuskani would have voted on exactly the same things, Nus mm -hmm. would have had it a lot worse yeah. than you, for yep, example. Yep, 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 um, and I don't want to see people put off um, at all, because I always go into, when I say to primary school kids, I say, come into Parliament because this is your place as much as it is everybody else's. No, you can't vote, but I work for you. Like, this is this is this should be your place and it should be your safe space. And it really, really pains me when I see examples where I can't say to, to a kid in Luton, this is somewhere for you, right. and this is somewhere that you will be able to thrive and have equal opportunities and be heard in the same way as somebody else sat next to you. Mm. Just one last thing before we, before we wrap up, be, talking about abuse, you had a bit of a spat in the, in the Commons this week. Um, you know, do you think uh, you know, the conduct needs to improve maybe in the Commons? In some Massively, but I think it's I went in eyes wide open. And as much as Kevin says that you shouldn't have rhino skin, I think knowing that this is what is going to face you when you come in and be part of that change. I want to be part of that change, yeah. um, and you know I will always lean into it. But it shouldn't be happening. It yeah. shouldn't be happening. I, there is absolutely no reason why a woman who is representing and standing up for her constituents should be told to sit up, sit down, and shut up. Yeah. Um. I. I and but. I've had women write to me um, from Sedgefield, from West Brom, that have said that this happens to them in their workplace. 
or in their school, in their education, in every part of their lives. So this isn't just a parliamentary problem. This is a problem where actually I think there should be some leadership from us because we set the tone, we set the example um, that the rest of society takes its lead from. And that's the same for the media as well. That's all we've got time for this week, but you can read all the latest on the big stories from Westminster at politicsome.com and keep right up to date by subscribing to our seven-day-a-week newsletters by clicking on the link in the top right corner of the website. Thanks to my fantastic guests, Kevin Foster, Sarah Owen, Robert Colville. Our editor today was Laura Silver. Thanks to you all again for listening. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from and leave us a review. If you want to get in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter at politicshome or email us via news at politicshome.com. But for now, I've been Alan Tolhurst, and this has been The Rundown.